Hello, rhetorical listeners, and welcome in to another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. By now, you should have an idea of what your semester looks like. Your schedule is set. You know where you need to be on Mondays and Thursdays and all the other days. What's your schedule look like? Mine is unique because I have a five-hour break in between my two classes. Does anyone else have a break like that? Do you like those breaks? I've found that those breaks are oftentimes the most productive times for me during the semester. During my big five-hour break on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I hold office hours. No one ever comes by. So I'm usually just hanging out, working, recording podcast episodes during office hours. You know how it goes. So since I am having a bit of a down semester so far concerning student coming by the office to see me during office hours or making appointments, I wonder what are some of your tips or tricks or nuggets to get students to come by the office. I don't really enjoy or think it's productive to pressure students, to require students to come by the office. I know some instructors like to do that pre or beginning of the semester meet and greet. All right. Come by, introduce yourself. I'm not a big fan of those because we don't know the student's schedule and we don't know how comfortable the student is being one-on-one with me, the instructor, that early in the semester. So I'm not a fan of that. What I really want to know is, what are the things you say? How do you frame a visit to your office hours? Mine are from 11 to 12. So I've thought oftentimes about going to a coffee shop or perhaps going to a restaurant near campus and holding office hours there. But I think that might be an accessibility issue. I am supposed to be in my office and here I am during my office hours. What do you all think? What do you do? Tweet at us at the Big Red. Post on our Facebook page. What are your tips for promoting office hours to your students? We are talking to uh, Purba Chatterjee today. I'm excited about this conversation. When I started this endeavor, this project, I wasn't sure how far it would go. I wasn't sure of my reach, right, if you will, or my rhetorical trajectory. But one of the first people to reach out to me was Aperba. Uh, she is a PhD student at the University of Sheffield across the pond in the UK. So that's interesting. Aperba will be our first international scholar that we're going to talk to. Uh, she's an Indian citizen working in the UK. That's going to be exciting as we dive into a conversation about the impact of visual rhetoric on Indian bodies during colonialism. But here's the thing. We talk about digital rhetoric. We talk about visual rhetoric. We talk about bodies. We talk about power. We're talking about rhetoric. But a purba is getting her PhD in history. So the conversation does have a historical cadence to it, if you will, that is quite appealing for some. And I really appreciated that. 
Admittedly, when she reached out and sent over her CV, I wondered how would this work? How would this scholar getting her PhD in history be able to join our inter- our conversation? To join our conversation, but ah, we are interdisciplinary. The field, the discipline, rhetoric is interdisciplinary. And when I accepted that, I was ready to go. I was ready to see what a perba had to bring to the conversation. So buckle up. Here's my conversation with a perma chatter. So you worked on your BA in history at at, at the Presidency College, yeah. right? At mm-hmm. the University of Calcutta. And yeah. is that where you're from? Yeah, I'm from Calcutta, yeah. Your family's there? Yeah, yeah. What's your par your parents? There, what did they do? Yeah. So my father is an engineer, and uh, he uh, he basically worked with the government of India. So he's like a technical analyst who designed uh, weapons and things like that. So it's mostly he worked under the Ministry of Defense. And my mother started her career teaching, but later on when I was growing up, so she had to stop doing that because the thing is like she needed to look after me. So. <laughs> Well, like that's a sacrifice that she made for me, really. So, uh, yeah. So my parents are, they are both into sciences. So my mother had a degree in maths and my father, as you can say, like it's with technical analysis and things like that. So it's more of a very, like more STEM subjects. So like very scientific in orientation. So they have had both. How do you wind up in history then? Oh, it's it's like a very interesting trajectory. Nobody ever guessed that I would be in history because this is the thing like I when growing up, I did well in all subjects in school. So like I personally also enjoyed working with all subjects. I wasn't simply studying for grades. I was really enjoying what I was learning and what was introduced to me as a school student I took an avid interest in learning like looking at encyclopedias and things like that so I had a very broad sense of learning from a very early stage in my life and what I was interested in to see is like like people when it was kind of getting close to time when you have to decide what you want to pursue at a higher level for higher education and things like that What I was a bit confused about is like, okay, I like all of them, but what do I choose? Because I can't study all of these. But then I started thinking about a subject that can actually help bring all my interests and all my different orientations in different subjects together. And in history, I found the answer. So that's why I ended up doing history. And a teacher of mine from my school, she had a very strong influence on me. Like she taught us history and she really introduced us to to like how interesting and how innovative teaching can be and then how interesting history is as a subject and why it is important to learn our, our about our past because see she and then another teacher I had like he both of them they basically uh, engendered this view in me that uh, one needs to have a proper knowledge of the past in order to do better in their present and future so that's how it all started and yeah i'm happy i made the choice really it sounds like you had a really great experience at the university of calcutta yeah yeah absolutely it was uh, like it was a delight uh, 
being taught by experts all the time and uh, they and these are like stalwarts in their field and they when teaching us they weren't just simply stalwarts like in an ivory tower scenario but they were really grounded and they wanted to help us explore our own interests they always uh, were very interested to hear what we thought about a particular topic and always made sure that we spoke up and we expressed our opinions on different topics being discussed and taught so that was really a good uh, yeah starting point as one may say one of the unique things i've i've noticed uh, about you know, the work that you've done so far is that you have two MAs. Yeah. Yeah. So you have one from the University of Calcutta mm-hmm. and then I'm going to say this wrong, I'm sure. Uh, but you have another MA in from Uppsala University. Uppsala. That's how that's the uh, Swedish version. Yeah. Uppsala University in Sweden. Yeah. So maybe you could begin. Tell us a little bit about your master's uh, degree from Calcutta and then maybe transition us and tell us a little bit about the work you did to receive your MA from uh, the University of Sweden. Uh huh. That's yeah, that was quite interesting because my uh, MA at the University of Calcutta is about the history of modern India and world. So I focused on modern world, which is precisely like uh, late 19th century, basically, late 19th century India, late 19th century India, like British Indian Empire, and then obviously the history of the world as it was transforming in the 20th century. So that was my subject. And I specialized uh, in the social history of modern India. So there are there were topics regarding urbanization and uh, like different social institutions such as caste, which is quite prominent in India and uh, caste and marriage and different things. So I specialized in the social history of modern India. So that was one kind of a study. And while doing all these, uh, while studying these, I developed a very intrinsic interest into the ideologies and the rhetorics on which the British Indian Empire was based and how what is the role of language what is the role of ideas and even visuals which I'll come to in a bit and why are these important and how can ideas and language sustain a regime of politics and uh, domination so that was something that I started taking an interest in and when I moved to Sweden to do my MA Uh, at Uppsala University, my topic of research was uh, British monarchy in the 18th century. That actually gave me a lot of, uh, like, that actually gave me some grounding into how to see the working of uh, politics and uh, ideas. And this time I started exploring uh, visual images, really. And uh, I was interested in visual images because I saw that in certain ways, written documents don't give us as much information about something. But if you look at an image from that time, you find even more than you expect to find. So that's something that interested me. And simultaneously, I started developing 
uh, an interest into alternative source materials when it came to teaching and learning in history, basically. So historians for a very, very long time had based their inquiries on written archives. But there is the biggest shortcoming with the written archives is that there are certain groups in society which get excluded if you like uh, solely put your emphasis on written archives. So that's how I got really interested into visual imagery, because I found that sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of uh, like, uh, that is what my whole PhD is about. Like images inform you much more about different settings and different rhetorics of power than texts would sometimes reveal. Because the thing is like you can conceal a lot of factors in texts. You can conceal a lot in images as well. But the way artists deal with uh, these uh, concealing, these acts of concealing certain anxieties of power is very informing in itself. So, so what, that's something that I picked up, really. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of uh, language of power or, or, or image, rhetorical strategies and images are you seeing, you know, associated with, you know, power and British imperialism and growing mm-hmm. up? Give us a, give us an example of what you okay. mean. Okay. So that's very interesting because the thing is like, uh, so uh, I was a visiting fellow at Yale Center for British Art. So Yale uh, Center for British Art has a permanent exhibition on the progress, the growth and progress of British art in from the later half of the 18th century. And much of this progress of British art in the 18th century, in the later half of the 18th century, is also associated with the growth of British empire all over the world. And a lot, and obviously images also responded to this expansion of British empire. And a lot of Images were produced in that wake, basically. And what happened is like when British Empire is extending, it was all about going to new different kinds of new places, meeting or interacting with people. So all these people and places, they and even flora and fauna as well of these different uh, areas where British Empire was, was expanding, they become the subject of British art. So British art in that regard isn't simply confined to Britain. It becomes, it addresses the empire as well. And in doing that, it kind of tries to highlight the imperial settings, basically, imperial settings of political power, and then also how to uphold that political power and what are the problems and anxieties in upholding uh, imperial power. So that's something that, art actually gets enmeshed in and that is something that i am studying in my phd you're doing your phd right now at sheffield university yeah. in the uk yeah. mm-hmm. your project title is image imaging imperialism a study of visual representation in early british india from 1730 to 1820 yes that sounds like some fascinating work could you tell us a little bit about your experience so far at the University of Sheffield and maybe oh. the people you're working with and what it's like living? Um, is that in London? No, it's not. It's uh, north of England, basically. It's like two hours away from London. Okay. So uh, it's north of England. So, yeah, if Sheffield is a fascinating city. Sheffield itself has a very 
interesting history in terms of uh, its development. So it is basically a Maya. It was uh, Sheffield is very famous all over the world for its cutlery and steelwork. So these that's uh, the back that was the backbone of Sheffield's economy in uh, the 19th century, basically. And the university kind of developed uh, from the initiative of these people who were earning their fortunes through steel industry. Uh, they helped develop the university in order to build up their own respectability uh, in terms of uh, the scenario of the UK, in terms of uh, the socio-political life in the UK. So these are the people. So the university began as an initiative on the part of the elite, the mining uh, elite and uh, the industrial elite in Sheffield. So they invested in it and then it got royal sanction. And then from then, them like from them onwards, it uh, developed really. And Sheffield has done distinctively well in certain fields. And Sheffield's history department is one of the top history departments in the whole of the UK. So it's really a privilege to be able to study here. And my advisor is uh, really supportive. So my advisor is a scholar in the rhetorics of mercantilism and uh, power in 17th century. So one can say that how this rhetorics, the whole idea of uh, rhetoric and power informs my work. So like, uh, obviously, I derive a lot from his ideas. So that's what it is all about, really. It, living in the current political atmosphere, you know, in the states that I, I'm in, it's interesting to see how other international scholars approach uh, the intersections of, of power and rhetoric and the rise of specific regimes and then to think mm -hmm. about how that's being studied, you know, in my culture as well. You mentioned you were here uh, in the States uh, as a visiting research fellow at Yale, yeah. at the Yale Center for British Art in uh, New yeah. Haven. And that was for a month in 2018. Am I right? About yeah. That? yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. That must have yeah. been a heck of an experience. Oh, it was amazing, actually, on various levels, because first of all, if you are a scholar at Yale, what immediately happens is that you get access to all their amazing art collections. And that is like amazed that was amazing for me and I had personally seen all of these paintings myself like while working on them and things like that because nowadays uh, like digitization of images is a big thing and fortunately that is in place because that's really useful for scholars who can't always have access to the images themselves and things so Yale was like an amazing experience because I got to see all these artworks and it was amazing to take like walks in the galleries and see like how things have been placed and how they are displayed and why they're displayed in the way they are displayed and what kind of language of power and like poetics of uh, display one is trying to create through presenting images in a certain way. So that was really interesting. And the best part in Yale was to be able to closely work with the collections, with the digital, not just the digital collections, but also the archival collections. So some of the artists I look at in my PhD, they have their archives at Yale Center for British Art. So Who that they? was quite interesting. James Wales and James Forbes. So James Wales' work is like 
he has um, like uh, there are two volumes of his diaries alongside uh, different kinds of artworks that he produced while he was in India. And another artist is James Forbes. So Yale has 13 volumes of his manuscripts, like all 13, massive 13 volumes of his manuscripts, which are an amazing source material to have a look at, like to be able to touch those volumes. It's like amazing. So like historians, uh, like privilege, primary sources, like the sources which were created at the time when the person was living or that is something that he had created and things like that. So historians privilege primary source a lot. So like being able to touch a primary source is like you were touching history. So that was quite interesting. You presented a uh, paper there, Visual Arts in British Indian Empire, a study of political authority and legitimacy mm-hmm. um, at, at Yale. And I assume that that, um, again, plays into your larger projects. It seems like everything is connected, which is the way to do things, right, if you're going to be yeah. in higher education. Yeah, uh, how did like, that project turn out, the one you worked at and presented at the Lewis Walpole Library Fellows Luncheon? Oh, first of all, I would highlight here the venue. Lewis Walpole Library is an amazing venue. So it's yeah. like it, as if it like transfers you to 18th century itself. The settings is amazing. If you see it, you feel like you are like in a Georgian home. The way the library is built, the gardens are laid out and things like that. It feels like you have been transformed, like transferred to Georgian era. So it was amazing. The settings are amazing there. And then simultaneously, the people were really nice. First of all, like uh, the curator, the chief curator there. So I knew her beforehand as well, Cindy. So they are all very nice and a very warm atmosphere, I would say. And this paper that I presented uh, there at uh, Lewis Walpole Library basically draws from the first chapter of my PhD thesis. So this is about like men in power. So one of the aspects that I look at in my PhD is about how different people, uh, not just the British, not just the Indians themselves uh, on whom the British were ruling, but also how the British were presented in an imperial setting and how uh, can that inform us about the political legitimacy that they were trying to create and project and how and uh, how does this happen so, uh, when we take into account the images. So how In other words, sorry, I'm just being a bit clumsy here. One can say that uh, how the political legitimacy of British imperial power was projected in images. And that was the subject of my talk there. And when I'm talking about images, I looked specifically at the images of people. Okay. British officials as well as like Indians, several Indian rulers as well as Indian uh, courtly, like Indian courtiers. How were they represented? in paintings by British artists and Indian artists simultaneously who were working for the British in an imperial. So you're looking at bodies yeah. and clothes. Yeah. And, yeah. And sartoriality like is a, yeah. Sartoriality is a very interesting subject in my whole research. And one can't really ignore it basically because they say clothes make it a man basically. So that's quite interesting because you can like, Sartorial language is a big thing. It can produce 
a lot of ideas and uh, yeah it like clothing produces a lot of ideas what you wear tells a lot about you basically so yeah that mattered a lot in the depictions and i focused that on that too in my presentation so you come back to sheffield university from your time at yale and mm-hmm. i see that you have a recent publication from march yeah. 2019 yeah yeah exciting um, an article titled Visual Arts and British Imperialism in India in the 18th Century, A Colonial Society in the Making. And that uh-huh. was in Discover Society. Yeah. Uh, that sounds, again, like you're compounding your work and making it, streamlining like this important work together. Tell us a little bit about that work. Oh, uh, I think uh, Discover, like being able to participate and write and Discover Society itself was an honor because this is an academic magazine. It's like a really important academic magazine by uh, like uh, you run by sociologists at uh, University of Sussex. So and these are like really front ranking sociologists, if you see the world profile, really. And uh, that article actually was kind of a response uh regarding the decolonization of curricula that we are presently a lot thinking a lot about basically so that article is a response um into this these kinds of debates like how images can sustain a colonial regime and in a decolonial age how images can help us like the house study of images can also help us to decolonize the academic curriculum. So I think like what I said previously was that uh, a big, big problem with textual sources is that a lot of people, a lot of like one can use like academically, one can use the term subalterns. They get excluded from the larger narratives of power and empire and hierarchies. But images at the same time, like when texts actually exclude these people, images reveal a lot about them. That's why I personally feel that the study of images is very productive when it comes to thinking about decolonizing our curriculum. Because this is a movement going on in the whole of the UK following a report by the Royal Historical Society, which basically said that the curriculum, the historical curriculum is uh, like previously has been quite biased because it didn't account very well for uh, the developments in imperial contexts, British imperial contexts. So it is like increasingly uh, like there are developments that trying to developments trying to redress that lacuna, basically. And I think that images have a very significant role to play if we think about uh, decolonizing the curriculum and how the study of images because one of the main things that I believe in this regard is that images traditionally like from the time like uh, from the time when British Empire was extending all over the world the thing is images were used as a trope of empire different tropes of empire came into play into the images and images played a very crucial role in sustaining various imperial hierarchies and often also uh, they also helped us inform about the resistance of uh, the people 
of the colonized and how they responded to the imperial hierarchies of power. So in a decolonial era, I personally think that images can help us see those politics of hierarchies and politics of living in empire and then trying to resist its uh, totalizing claims. I think images can be really productive in that direction. So yeah, that article basically was a fruit of these ideas so that I tried out and uh, yeah, people liked it. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. We'll make sure to tweet that out, uh, that, the link to that article. In July right. 2019, you were named an Associate Fellow of Higher Education. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, yeah. Is that right? Did I say it wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you said it perfectly right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I want so and I know that that is a fellowship that um that is associated with your teaching experience. Yeah. So what are you what are you going to be teaching? Uh, what are you teaching now, or what are you going to be teaching coming up soon? Um, uh, soon I'm going to teach a course on this is a this will, the course that I'm going to teach soon at the university is a survey course. So it's basically starts. Uh, with a journey from uh, antiquity to modernity. It covers, tries, tries to cover everything, basically. Just a snapshot of what historical developments have been like. So in teaching that course, I think my main agenda would be to put the rest of the world back into the picture, something that might traditionally have been excluded from Eurocentric narratives of history, Euro-American centric narratives of history, basically. So my objective would be to put the rest of the world back in, because I personally believe that European world has been shaped to a great extent by its encounter with the rest of the world. And we need to give the rest of the world its due place in the academic curricula. Like Europe, like obviously, if you are teaching European history, obviously you can start from Europe. But my objective is to not to treat uh, it in isolation, but to see it in terms of the wider forces in the world and how Europe responded to it and how, like, what were the other responses to Europe as well. So that's something that I am very keen on bringing uh, into my teaching for this course. I'm sure in many ways it also uh, is a part of your PhD uh dissertation and everything that you're doing in graduate school, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, like I come from India, it's not just a personal narrative that I'm trying to bring in, but it's the experience of a lot of people. We personally are seeing like what is going on in the world. We, we are aware of various developments. So it's all about like putting, it's not just, I wouldn't say it's not, giving the voiceless a voice it's about because these people have their voices we just have to hear them i don't think they're voiceless they have a voice we just have to develop a sympathetic ear to accommodate and hear all their voices so that's what uh, i think uh, my objective is to bring in my teaching so it's not just about like uh, colonizing regimes it's also about People like uh, it's also about people with disabilities, for example. We need to hear them. Like probably we like one we can't consider them as voiceless. They probably have a different way of expressing themselves. So it's all about being more accommodative 
to the world around make sure that everybody can say what they want to say like creating a more balanced platform for everyone to be able to contribute so that we can enrich the curriculum and we can enrich ourselves with each other's experience so that's what my objective is about what are what are some of the intersections that you see uh in your work with visual rhetoric and and, and images with the work going on in in writing studies, either mm. where you're at, uh, and or in another per, uh, more global perspective. Oh, uh, it's quite interesting because the thing is like, uh, if I can consider it from the vantage point of post-colonial scholarship, it tries to basically read against the grain, and like enshrining into the era of uh, like uh, ushering into the era of. Uh, post-colonialism and decolonizing motives, basically, we are also taught to read things against the grain in order to recover that voice, which has been silenced. So I think in that way, my work, as it tries to recover the intentions of the subject populace, is very interesting. Like it matches very well with the writing studies agenda as well, to read against the grain, to look at the context in which something has been written and something which has been excluded, to try to find something which has been excluded from what has been given. Obviously, this does require a lot of theoretical and methodological sophistication. But given that, the whole agenda is to read against the grain. And also this Maybe is imp- it is also important to think about uh, writings of uh, people who have traditionally not been able to participate in the Republic of Letters, basically. So it's also about looking at third world literature as an example and how like how they interact and what they bring to the palette. So that's something which I find very fascinating because I myself look at a lot of uh, post-colonial literature for my own work. And then I personally have to read a lot of text. Like don't like I do research visuals, but then at the same time, I have to read a lot of published as well as unpublished records from uh, uh, like uh, from the 18th century. And it's pretty much about like, see reading them against the grain and trying to see like what is not meant what was not meant to be seen in there and how our historical distance from a time and how the changing mentality enables us to find those voices which has been which have been silenced in these writings so there are it it is not like uh, an a unidirectional approach i think there are different things coming into it. And uh, it also depends on from what uh, uh, methodological or what uh, disciplinary approach we try mm. to put into it. So, yeah, I think I guess it's uh, different for everyone. Aperba, anything else you want to add before we let you get off here? I know that there's quite a bit of a time difference uh, since you're over in the UK and I'm here in Central uh, America. Um, I guess you have pretty much covered everything, but, uh, like, uh, in terms of if you, if we think about the rhetorics and why, like, uh, and why 
like someone working with visuals and how we can bring them into the frame of rhetorics. I think the, it's important to consider visual rhetorics besides textual uh, information, because the thing is like nowadays, I think it is important for us to broaden the definition of language. And I think visuals definitely have a role to play in their signs. Visuals has an important role in redefining as well as uh, like being assimilated into the whole idea of language. So it's, language is not simply written or spoken. It is something that we see as well. So I think uh, that's quite interesting. And um, power obviously matters a lot. It has mattered. It will matter. It's It comes down to us how we approach it and uh, from what perspective we want changes or do we want the changes as well? So that's, yeah, all of that comes together, basically. I wish you well in, uh, and continued success as you work to Thank decolonize uh, visual rhetoric, power, uh, and um, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> the curriculum. Curriculum, yeah. All right, thank you, Perva. It's nice chatting to you. Bye. So that was my conversation with Aperba Chatterjee. Uh, Things went well, I think. I was admittedly, and I admitted this to Aperba, um, nervous about the connections how strong the connections between her work that she's doing um and the work that i'm doing with this podcast would be but they seem to be quite clear especially when she started talking about uh decolonizing the curriculum hey rhetorical listeners do you have a project that you're working on Are you an emerging scholar? Perhaps you're about to hit the job market or you have a new article or book coming out. Sign up to be a guest on the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series, a place that offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. Over time, this record of conversations will be a vast catalog of dialogues, a digital archive with the potential impact knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. For scholars and practitioners, the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication by learning more about the research of graduate students and less seasoned scholars. I want to thank Aperba for joining us all the way from Sheffield University in the UK, I felt stupid. I thought Sheffield University was in London. She's right. It's famous. I'd heard of it. But still, I thought it was in London. That's okay. All right. Hope you're buckled up. Semester's underway. Hope things are going well for you. Make sure to leave us a review. Make sure to like us, retweet us, follow us, listen to our episodes wherever you get podcasts. Stitcher. Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. It doesn't matter. Search the Big Rhetorical Podcast and make sure you listen today. Are you interested in being a guest? Are you working on something cool? Is your project taking shape? Are you about to hit the job market? Reach out to us. We want to profile your work, acknowledge your labor, and highlight your 
scholarship. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically. <laughs>